My name is Josh. I'm speaking to you from PAC Studios in South Bend, Indiana, the host of We The Peace. We The Peace is a podcast sponsored by PAX, dedicated to mobilizing Christian leaders to bring Jesus-centered peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of Jesus are central to discipleship. We the church are we the peace in a hurting and violent world. In season two, we explore how Christian leaders can develop a Jesus-centered outlook on politics. What does Jesus have to do with politics? How does the kingship of Jesus impact our understanding of modern politics? In what way is the church a political institution? We will define politics, walk through the four Christian views on politics, and then look to the ministry of Jesus for how Christians are to relate to and mobilize politically. Let's jump into this week's episode. What's up, everyone? This is episode 10 in our 11-episode season on Jesus-centered politics. We are landing the plane, people. (laughs) This episode should be pretty tactical and specific. Uh, I'm going to be giving some principles, basically, that I'm hoping we as churches can live by. This season, I started off with a broad brush by telling the story of God's political vision for the world and how that dovetailed into God sending his son as king into the world to start a religio-political movement. I narrowed down to the context of Jesus and how the politics of Jesus were represented in the very Jewish and Hebrew narrative of including the nations into the radical love and grace of God through Jesus expressed on the cross. Any more questions, check out episode three. Then I contrasted the three diseased political theologies that are well represented in the case study of the Reformation. I contrasted those three for the prophetic witness tradition. Check out episode four if you want to listen to that. And then I did a bunch of interviews. And we are now landing the plane. As I get in, I actually want to give you a book right now that I think you should read by Miroslav Wolf, a theologian, last name V-O-L-F. He wrote a book called A Public Faith, How Followers of Christ Should Serve the Common Good. If you want to next steps from this season and even from this episode, that is a great book for you to pick up. I'm going to recap the seven practices in the politics of Jesus because it is on top of these seven practices I'm going to be delivering this episode. And really, as Christians, may we rally behind the political witness of the church as we seek to faithfully subvert the pagan politics of America and whatever country that is hosting you. First, the church is the political alternative to worldly political systems. Two, the politics of Jesus measures success by faithfulness, not by acquired power or greater influence. Three, the politics of Jesus, 
applies constant pressure on political systems and political leaders to take care of the most vulnerable. Fourth, as the church treats all humans justly, we are willing to suffer unjust treatment. Five, we engage politically from the margins out or from the bottom up. Sixth, violence is never the means of accomplishing our goals nor the end result of our politics. Seventh, we do everything the Jesus way. And when the church and her leaders commit to these Jesus-centered political postures, we will help create better lives, families, communities, nations, and we will create a better world. That is the aim of this season. So I want to start with a story. While I was doing some PhD research about four months ago, which I often do, I quite randomly came across this dope academic article in the Western Journal of Communication called Hermeneutic Range in Church-State Deliberations, Cross Meanings in the Los Angeles County Seal Controversy. I thought to myself, that sounds interesting. Then I thought to myself, that has nothing to do with my dissertation. Then I thought to myself, I want to read this. And so I clicked on it. I read it. It was super interesting. Basically, in 2014, the LA Board of Supervisors were divided as the ACLU was trying to remove the cross from the Los Angeles seal. So it was taken up by a federal judge who ultimately took the cross out of the seal. This is after lots and lots of time and money was spent by religious folks weighing in on whether it should be taken out, put in, uh, something else put in, you know. So in this journal article written by a guy named Don, look it up, he synthesizes the three primary religious groups arguing four different outcomes. Two groups argued to keep it in, one argued to take it out. So as I'm going to explain these three views, I want you to ask yourself, based on what you've been learning in this season or based off of your own political theology and opinion, what should the posture of Christians be towards something like this? First view was pro-cross religious leaders. These leaders said the cross is a subjective symbol stretching beyond religious meaning that should be kept in the seal. They basically said the cross could represent Jesus. It could represent anything you wanted it to be. Sacrifice, humility, friendship, loyalty. Maybe it's speaking to the missions that were set up through conquest, kind of more of a sword. Maybe not. But they basically were saying we live in an age where this could be whatever you want it to be. Why would we take it out? It's historic. There was a second group, pro-cross religious citizens. These weren't religious leaders arguing. These are regular citizens, and these are made up of Christians. These folks argued that the cross represents Jesus as Lord over all, and the truth of the Christian religion and the Christian, quote, founding of the United States in quotes because that's junk. Therefore, the cross should stay in the seal. And they basically argued, listen, 
we hold the right religion, Christianity. And our religion, Christianity, has been tied in somehow in a, in a way to the founding of the country. And they saw that as a very positive thing, as if you can connect the cross and the sword so simply. And they said, well, it's got to stay. It has to do with Christianity coming to this land and Christianity being in California and coming on the wave of colonialism and all the blood spit, whatever. It needs to stay. And if this view seems appealing to you, please go back and listen to episodes three and four of this season. I articulated clearly that this is Augustinian, Constantinian. It's a Calvinistic outlook on Christians controlling the government and infusing ourselves and our influence in an unhealthy way over government. Then there was a third group, anti-cross religious leaders. And they're like, listen, the cross is a religious symbol that should be kept out of a public political seal in accordance with separation of church and state. I love this as a case study because it gets to the heart of a central question. How are Christians supposed to relate to the public square? How are Christians now supposed to relate to people who think the Ten Commandments have to be in the public square and the cross should be in the public square and a Christian moral framework needs to be legislated somehow? I mean, how do Christians legislate their moral positions without playing by the rules of empire while we're trying to promote human flourishing for all. As I've said throughout the season, it is not easy to figure that out. How are we salt and light embodying the politics of Jesus, those seven practices I opened with, as we have the power to vote and legislate, at least some of us. Now, in my final point, I'm going to circle back to that analogy and give my take on that as a case study. What should Christians be advocating for in that particular situation? Now I'm going to give five hopefully concrete and simple takeaways on how Christians can help promote the common good and help create a social contract as we work alongside other people with other belief systems. Number one, Christians must adopt common language among fellow believers that we live in community with. We have to have the same language. This is central. This is core. You are not always going to learn this from our broader culture. You don't engage online going, do we have the same definitions for the words? Am I playing by your rules of conversation? Are you playing by my rules of conversation? And it leaves us lost. So this has to do with the church. What does it mean for your faith community to adopt common language? I'm going to give you a set of words and definitions to get you started. It's very important to have common rules in relation to the words that are charged in our midst. First, worldview can be defined as a set of answers to life's most pressing questions. In the 21st century, we must understand that we are working alongside millions of other people who do not share the same convictions as we do or 
even as I do, as I am looking to my neighbors and the people around me. That's a normal thing. We all have different worldviews and we answer life's most difficult questions differently. Culture. I define that as shared stories, values, and expressions reinforced through artifacts, habits, and traditions. And simply put, it's stories, values, and expressions. Why would I define that for us in this episode? Well, most people, when they say culture, they're going to bring it up in a pejorative way, like a negative way, or a positive way, like it's a good thing. When when I say culture and the people that I'm around, when we say culture, we're not using it in a negative or positive way. We're just saying it's shared stories, values, and expressions. And then we move to talking about that specific cultural thing. It's important to know what you mean when you say culture. Politics. I opened up by defining politics a very specific way. Simply put, it's the public good or the project of promoting human flourishing. You have to agree on what you mean by politics. A lot of Americans, when they say politics, they think of a national election or they think of voting. As a Christian who is trying to have a Jesus-centered definition of politics, I'm not thinking about a national election. I'm not thinking about voting, even though those two things are a part of what it means to be political. By political, I mean promoting the public good, the common good of all. Policy, these are laws promoting human flourishing. Power, a concentration of influence, resources, and the ability to use force. When you use the word power, are you using it in a positive way or a negative way? And there is a massive divide between modernity and postmodernity on how we will be using that word. You need to know amongst the people that you're working with, you're working alongside of how that word should be used. And should institutions who are endowed with large amounts of power be able to hold that and wield that? Social contract. This is probably the most important one that I will read. It is the agreed upon rules for the public square that all citizens abide by regardless of religion or worldview. What this means is we all participate, whether proactively or passively, in the political process. Whether you vote or you don't vote, you're doing something. And as things get into our legislation, it becomes social contract. And as politicians uh, petition for certain things, they get passed and it enters into the social contract, the rules by which we as a society have agreed to live by. That's what we mean by social contract. And that is what we're contesting. Everybody is contesting to create a better social contract. Ideology. Ideology is a belief system that protects power and position through caricatures, appeals to fear, and appeals to negative emotions, anger, hatred, indifference. We are surrounded by ideologues in our culture. You turn on MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, 
anything in the range between. Oftentimes, we are interacting with ideologues that are concerned with maintaining the power and position of whoever they are advocating for as a pundit, as a host, as a writer. And Jesus came and he did not play the game of ideologue. And the ideologies that were surrounding the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots, Jesus confounded and undid. Ideology is very dangerous. The last one I'll say is activism. These are individuals or groups placing just pressure for socio-political change. And this doesn't just mean socio-political. This could be spiritual. These could be activists and prophetic voices in our midst at our churches. And do we honor them in their role or dismiss them as disruptive? We must adopt common language. Maybe you like those definitions that are mine. Maybe you don't. But what words do you need to adopt as a leader in your setting with those who you are around so that your common language can create boundaries and safety for conversation, as Brandy Miller talked about? Number two, develop a multifaceted approach to politics. It's quite silly every four years when the Patriot police come out. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a pundit. Maybe it's you where you feel this pressure to pressure other peoples to vote for a national election. And somehow our political engagement gets wrapped up every four years. And besides that, we can disengage. In fact, when you hear presidents talk about how hard it is to get the job done after they get voted in. So much of that has to do with we disengage from politics after an election. As Christians, I don't see voting for a president as 80% of what I'm called to do politically, like the feeling you get in North America and the United States. And we must develop a multifaceted approach to politics. Remember, politics is not simply voting for a president and voting for regional elections, and then we just go about our lives. It's promoting the common good by the way that we organize bodies, Dr. Kavanaugh's language. That is politics and promoting the common good. We can do this locally, regionally, nationally, and globally. I want you and your communities to think about these four ways that you can engage politically and in which way has God called you in your setting to. Maybe it's regional, maybe it's local, maybe it's hyper-local and it's a block or a two, three square mile radius. Maybe it is national and you're called like Mark Charles, who I interviewed, to more of a national political engagement. I could use the experiences we had in Los Angeles as an example. When we were in Los Angeles, for us, it was about local politics and how can the church stand against gentrification the commodification of space as, as it devalues the lives of humans and robs humans of the dignity afforded them by the Imago Dei. How can churches get behind renters' rights? Uh, how can we help to improve policing tactics? Our church went to different community gatherings talking about gang injunctions and how that can be a very damaging thing to local families? What about predatory lenders, gang intervention, foster care support, policy advocacy, and for us most supremely, 
is youth advocacy and advocating for those who aren't quite old enough to be advocating for themselves on a political level. And we must have this multifaceted approach to the public good. So then voting for a president or voting for a local election becomes maybe 10 to 20% of what we view as political and our spending habits and where we shop and the people that we invite over and where we're using our money and the, the families we're working alongside to help with the injustice surrounding us becomes the other 80% of our political engagement. Number three, we must show that the way of Jesus is worth living. Christians must show through the political witness of the church that the way of Jesus is worth living. This means that we, that our personal ethics are consistent with the same ethics that we want to be in the social contract. About five years ago, I was watching a abortion debate on YouTube between a guy who is kind of a jerk and arrogant, brilliant, and a woman, she was a feminist, I forget her name, but it was an amazing debate. She was brilliant. And the guy was clearly winning from a scientific and from a biological standpoint. And later in the argument, she said, until men stop breaking apart and tearing apart families through drone strikes and war, they have no right to tell women what to do with their bodies. And I heard that and I was like, she's right. She's 100% right. And when you think about the church and the divorce rate in the church and how much of that is due to men and infidelity, and then all of a sudden the religious right has this huge outcry against abortion, aside from the morality of abortion, it's hypocrisy. It's complete hypocrisy. We are contending for something in the public square that we refuse as men to hold in our heart as we relate to our families, as we relate to the women around us, as we relate on our phone in the treatment of women. Until we can be consistent in our personal ethics with what we want publicly, we have no right to advocate for Christianity in the public square when it impacts the choice of individuals. So before any of that, we must offer a counter community in areas where we disagree with government. When you think of the early church taking care of the destitute when Rome was unwilling to do that. Number four, we must carefully endorse or promote a political person or policy. Remember, as Christians, we already have a king. We already have our political leader, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. So as we are moving to endorse a person or a policy, we embrace nuance. We carefully learn. We reluctantly endorse. We understand the limitations of this broken system and this person or policy not being Jesus and not being the politics of Jesus. And we don't fall prey to the games of the system. Number five, 
we contend for a just social contract in collaboration with other belief systems and other worldviews. Remember, social contract means the agreed upon rules for the public square that all citizens abide by. And Christians have to contend in the public square for legislation according to the rules of a liberal, secular democracy. We as Christians should not expect any special treatment. And the morals of Christianity should be scrutinized publicly in political debate in the same way that any religious morals should be scrutinized by the public square, by what's going on politically. And we just can't expect a secular government to play by the rules of a Christian worldview. And this is, this is a part of our Calvinist Constantinian hangover that fogs the mind here in the United States of America as a colony that has never given its territory back to the natives. We either are going to be the victor politically or we will play the victim. It's all or nothing. It's black or white. It's victory or victim. It's collective narcissism. And it's the opposite of the politics of Jesus. It's the opposite of how Jesus has taught us to love and sacrifice and care for the common good. We must develop arguments and forms of logic that work alongside other religions. And the future is interfaith dialogue, inter-worldview dialogue in the 21st century. As we build a society together, it can't be us versus them. It can't be victim or victor. It can't be black or white. It can't be use my ball or I'm going to go home and nobody can play. Because that has been the Constantinian mode of the church, of the Western dominant church in the 20th century and it has failed us. We can't continue to do that in the 21st century. And Christians should be contributing in long-suffering, in restorative justice, in advocacy alongside and behind those suffering the most, and in the seven political postures of Jesus that I opened up with. So I want to circle back as I close on the opening analogy and on the opening case study. There's a cross in the LA County seal. There are these different religious groups saying it should stay in for different reasons and it should not be in it for different reasons. It's a pretty broken case study to begin with because the cross is in the seal because the colonial mission of the church in California. So the cross is in, in common memory in California because of colonialism, because of the Catholic missions that were set up to steal land, to take life, to proselytize at the edge of a sword, which is the opposite of what Jesus has called us to, violent evangelism. 
So the fact that the cross is in the seal to begin with is a very poor reason. It's less of a cross and more of a sword. Think back in the 20th century. Let's just go 1970 to the year 1999 and the millions and millions of hours that evangelicals and Christians have spent and the hundreds of millions of dollars that Christians have spent trying to Christianize the United States, trying to make it more Christian, trying to have power over government, super PACs, politicians, presidents, presidential hopefuls. And I want you to ask yourself, one, how far has it gotten us? And it's pretty pathetic how backwards the witness of the church has been as a result of these Calvinistic Constantinian tactics. What if all that money and all that time was spent loving our neighbors instead of spending those millions of dollars on megachurches that money was taken to care for children in the foster system and that money was taken to ensure that communities weren't gentrified and that money was taken and it was a it was given to moms who get pregnant and and the church didn't leave the city but decided to stay in the city and learn from the city and learn from the locals and and instead of pressing into homogenization was embracing a humble diverse posture of, of learning from people of color what if that was 1970 through 19 99 and in Los Angeles all of a sudden the city is going to the Christians and saying you stand for love and you stand for peace and when you're in a public debate with people you're refusing to be mean you're refusing to be backbiting you're refusing to spend money to do those things that you care so much about the truth that you stand on the truth not to hold it over people but to serve along with people and we recognize Christians as not trying to Christianize a nation, but to love their neighbor and their community, to care for those who are suffering the most. And even though it's kind of radical and it's weird and we don't understand why you don't get swept up into national politics, we also notice that you are the most peaceful people and you're praying for people at the polls and you're, you're offering food to people you disagree with politically. And you were the ones mobilizing interfaith dialogues. You were the ones bringing Muslims and atheists and Hindus and Christians and progressives and conservatives together to have these interfaith dialogues in your local setting. My goodness, why do you do all this? And the answer is because we follow King Jesus. He is our politician. He has given us the blueprint for a better society, not trying to change it through power and force and violence and coercion, but through love and sacrifice. A Philippian 2, emptying of ourselves for society. And then LA says, you know what? What is your symbol? What are you known by? And, and we reply back as Christians in Los Angeles. The cross. And the city says, it would be an honor for you to pick a symbol of your faith. And we need that desperately in our cities. Can we please put it in our seal? 
You see, that's the fourth option that is unrealized. And I'm putting our imagination to that option because that is the politics of Jesus. That we would love and serve and care so deeply through these seven practical practices I gave in this season so that we can be salt and light and love as we move forward in our Jesus-centered politics. And we fail and God forgives us. And we don't get it right and God loves us in return. And we pour out that same love and that forgiveness to those who are around us. And we become complacent and we get behind the movement of God in the 21st century to embrace a Jesus-centered politics. My name is Josh. This is We the Peace.